I'm saying that you don't have to practice five, six hours a day. And if you do have time and are motivated, let's say a young professional or a student to practice many hours a day, keep in mind that you can actually practice too much. Morning. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Sang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Alan Vizzuti. Alan's skills on the trumpet are off the charts, and his sense of humor, well, it's a bit off the wall. Alan is the definition of a world-class artist. His technical mastery of the trumpet continues to amaze audiences across the globe. He's also a prolific composer, an avid educator, the author of the Alan Vizzuti Trumpet Method, and the occasional creator of outrageous videos. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. Welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I am so pleased to have as my guest the one and only Alan Bazzuti. Alan, it is so great to have you on uh, the podcast. Finally, I, I've been wanting to, to have this interview for some time. So thanks for joining well, me. Thank here. you. I'm so glad to be here. And I, I, I'm looking forward to talking to you about a myriad items, about myriad items, possibly. Myriad items, yes. I, you know, and obviously it's summertime. I'm sitting here in my short sleeve shirt and Alan is not wearing a leather jacket. So that that is... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Is that is that kind of like the uh, the Pacific Northwest thing? You know the that look. No, not really. I, I suppose it was some years ago, almost everywhere, the black leather jacket and that sort of thing. You know, was was a cool guy thing. But um, well, ladies too, I suppose. But uh, up here, it's the it's all that outdoor wear, like Patagonia type stuff. You know, uh, layers. Now today, um, as you mentioned, this is a summer recording we're doing. We're hitting the third time or fourth time in the history of Seattle in triple digits. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 109 today. Holy cow. Yeah. And it's hardly cooling off at night. I mean, it is cooling off at night, 30 degrees, but we usually are used to sort of 60 degrees, open the windows, and right. tons of people up here, including people with great houses, don't have air conditioning because they don't need it. Right. Didn't need it. Well, whatever changed, changed. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, saw the light-colored shirt, and oh. here we go. Oh, there you go. Uh, so how long have you been uh, in Seattle? Uh, we, uh, my wife and I have been here, family, uh, since 1990. Uh, we needed and decided we wanted to move out of Los Angeles uh, because of beginning a family and that sort of thing. Um, my wife's, uh, Laura Vizzuti, her home is in southern Idaho, and we kind of transitioned through there, trying to decide which West Coast city we'd like to move to. And um, a couple of years in Idaho, and then we decided on Seattle. Okay. Uh, yeah, we've really enjoyed the mixture of lifestyles, indoor, outdoor, um, mild weather, lots of scenery, national parks nearby, a good orchestra, a good ballet, a good opera, uh, a, kind of a grunge scene, a jazz scene. Uh, there's a lot going on here, theater, so, and good restaurants, you know. Um, we now are quite congested as a city, as many people have discovered us over our time here, uh, which may be of mild interest to, to anyone uh, listening. 
so we just to say we've really enjoyed it here and been here 30 some years yeah yeah i love that part of uh the continent not just the country because uh yeah. one of my favorite places is vancouver i love going to vancouver that's just you know it's beautiful um yes but, it is we really enjoy vancouver too so it's a two and a half two to two and a half hour drive and um yeah, we go up there and spend time. It, it's it's different than Seattle. I mean, if you describe the two cities with just general terms, they're harbors, they have a lot of boats, they have this, they have that. You'd kind of think, well, they're similar, but they're not really. Vancouver's a jewel. It's it's more cosmopolitan feeling to me. Yeah. And um, it has more... Um, the terrain is very interesting because we are surrounded by mountains and we're on Puget Sound, but Vancouver is really got close mountains. I mean, Grouse Mountain, which is a big ski mountain, is just right next to the city. And British Columbia is fabulous, so I won't go on about that. But yeah, yeah it's, it's a beautiful part of, of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had already said that, that uh, you had moved from Los Angeles to Seattle. And uh, I kind of actually want to start there, which is uh, kind of, I, I would say, almost like a, a midway point in your career. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you were, you were tearing it up there in LA with the studio scene and, and obviously, you know, all the other stuff that you, that you were doing. Uh, but what really made you think, um, about making that transition? I mean, you, you said family was, it was a huge thing, but, um, you know, was it, was it a difficult choice to make about, about leaving, uh, the vicinity and, and, uh, the opportunities that were afforded to you there? I would not say it was a difficult decision. I would say that along, uh, as my life has gone by, I've made a couple of risky decisions and not been too nervous about it. And this was one of them, as far as career goes. Um, Laura and I were not married, but we, we kind of reconnected after uh, 15 years of having met at the Eastman School of Music. We reconnected in Los Angeles. The reason I met, developed, um, sort of, it developed into a relationship which ended up being what it is now. And during that time, Laura uh, moved to Southern Idaho before we, we were to seeing each other, but um, we were not committed to marriage. And my career in LA was pretty busy. I actually was, has always wanted to and continued to take solo gigs, whether it was playing with a great orchestra or whether it was playing with a high school band. And when I book, uh, th this is pertinent because when you book those gigs, it may be a year in advance or more. And um, the studio calls come in very short notice. So I would miss some pretty big studio calls, movies and things like that, because I was going to play at a high school in Kansas. But I really want to pursue that and keep growing if I could in that direction. So um, as a result, even though I really loved playing in LA, um, the A-team there is remarkable. And, you know, some of your listeners may not realize that when you go to the movies and you hear a great acoustic film score, or at least partially acoustic film score, that music is sight-read and performed in very short period of time. One or two times through, you, you uh, read it, make sure the notes are right and it's working with the film. You play it down a couple of times, you move on to the next section of the movie. They're called cues, the music cues. And... Um, a lot of people don't realize that level of playing that goes on. When that's sight read, it's mind-blowing. So when you as a player get to fit into the group, a group like that and play with that level, it is, it's sparkling and fantastic. 
However, it is a craft when you play in the studios for other people. You, your personality is rarely wanted in terms of style of playing. Um, there's a lot of similarity to the dates in terms of um, not the process, of course, which makes it comfortable, but the music can be uh, a lot of brass players describe the, the top call kind of studio calls as um, 90 percent boring and 10 percent terrifying. <laughs> so um, it depends on the style of, act, uh, of the movie or the TV that's going on. So I don't want to get off into the weeds too much. But for instance, when I first went there, cop shows were really big. And that had a lot of trumpet in it, a lot of action, a lot of car chases, all that sort of thing. Uh, Chips comes to mind, that old California right. yeah, yeah. show. We played eight in the morning, we're playing high up sharps and all this kind of stuff because that's what was written. Then, we, uh, then um, uh, drama TV, this is before reality, but the, the situation dramas and the rom-coms came along, very little music. Uh, Seinfeld's a great example, a gazillion dollar show, but there's no music in it between takes. Mm -hmm is a bass, you know, and that's it. And so, however that was recorded, and it was recorded every season by one guy who was hired to do it, they recorded the whole season in, in one session, right? Right. So the craft part of it started to bother me a little bit that I was eager to, it sounds a little lofty, but to go to the, continue on to the artist part, to mm -hmm. be an artist, to play music that was my personality and to continue to write and things like that. And as I said, I was combining those two things. Now, if you add the element of family, we started, got married and started a family. Then we realized that Los, I had loved to be in Los Angeles. Now, admittedly, I know a lot of people don't care for it that much. It's a lot of traffic and crowds and it's so spread out. Um, but it's fabulous in a lot of ways too. It's not quite as colorful as Northern California, but you get my drift. Right. Um, but to raise a family there is a challenge and millions literally of people do it and they do great but we were lucky enough to have some choices so we wanted to get to a place that had the culture that I kind of described that had the elements that I kind of described about Seattle just a few minutes ago and get to where our kids could be uh a little more in a neighborhood and play when they get old enough outside and run around and not be worried about safety to the same degree that we might be otherwise. Um, good schools, boring stuff that's really important at that time in your life. Yeah. And we went for that. And so I was not nervous about the transition. I was excited about it. Um, probably it may be of interest, especially to the musicians listening that I probably would have a lot more money if I had stayed in LA with the, with the amount of work I was doing and the, well, the good reputation I had basically. And um, the residual system, which is AF of M national contract systems for movies, television, um, audio recordings and commercials. Those are all different rates of residual that you get paid again for certain things that are used a lot. Yeah. Um, just as a point of reference, that would have been coming in big time by now, which I don't have. And business-wise, ladies and gentlemen, um, I have had to basically, with a couple small uh, exceptions, had to create my own retirement accounts as I went along, which I encourage you to do because there's some good ones out there. Don't forget, look this up, R-O-T-H, Roth. If you don't have a pension and you want to start one, this is the way to go. Anyway. So all of those elements brought us to Seattle. We thought we looked at Seattle, uh, Portland, San Diego, and San Francisco. 
And I don't know if it's of a lot of interest, but Portland was great. Um, we just like Seattle a little better in terms of what it had to offer. San Diego was really laid back. It's the most temperate, beautiful climate we have in the continental United States, I think. Yeah. Um, so, and there's not a big music scene in terms of kind of work or anything. Actually, there's not in Seattle either for that matter. Um, and the airport in Seattle was the best except for San Francisco. And San Francisco, we discovered that San Francisco is a wonderful place and beautiful place to visit. Uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco is, is Tiburon and uh, um, Mill Valley and all kinds of places that are very temperate and really cool and villagey and fun. It's hyper expensive. And we discovered that if you didn't go to there or live right in San Francisco, which is actually, as the stereotype suggests, foggy a lot of the time, a lot of the time and cold, cool and cold. You live outside of San Francisco and then you're kind of in L.A. again in terms of um, sprawl and mini malls and gas stations, you're not really in San Francisco. And so we discovered a place called Mercer Island and in Washington. We are across a bridge, the famous floating bridge from Seattle. It takes us about 15 minutes to get from our house to downtown. We are across the same bridge, the other direction from Bellevue, Washington, which people don't know about really, I don't know why, but it's a sparkling new glass city across on the other side of the island. And um, we're right in the middle of an island in the middle of Lake Washington. So it's, it's a bridge access, freeway bridge access, and it's a really special kind of location. And we managed to just eke our way on here in 1990. And it's been a fabulous place, great schools, great lifestyle. And we're very, very lucky to be here and grateful for all that. Oh. Quite, a, quite an epic answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. I, but I mean, you 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 touched on on a couple of things that that I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about. Um, you know, the the a lot of a lot of players, you know, we, we, they have these kind of goals, you know, or or the ideal situation that they have in their head of you know, when I achieve this, then I'll feel like I am a success. Uh, you know, so whether it be when I can break into the LA music, uh, musical scene, when I can. Uh, land that symphony gig when I can, you know, X, Y, Z. And I, whether it be in trumpet or in life, I, I think it's the same thing. A lot of times that when we, when we set our, our, our focus on a goal, which I think goals are necessary, but when we become too married to that goal, then when we achieve it, then there's, there's kind of a, an empty feeling. It's like, wow, is, is this really all there is to it? Um, and you've you've moved around uh, in so many different genres in music uh, as a, a, a soloist, as a session player, jazz, classical, composer, uh, you know, all these different things. Um, have you been able to define a thread in your life so that, uh, you know, like, is, is it is it the process that that intrigues you and that motivates you? Or is it these kind of concrete goals? I, you know, I want to do this specific thing or achieve this specific level of, of fame or notoriety or, or technical proficiency. Yeah, that's an involved question in the sense that there's not a real clear answer. I think the basic fundamental I'll throw out there first is um, I, with the flow kind of person, I don't mean just uh, passively, but 
as energies flow through me and ideas come up, I like to just go with them. When I'm writing, for instance, I don't necessarily plan a whole piece. Sometimes I, I plan a place to begin or a, 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 an outline of what it's going to be in words and then let the music take me as I write. And it's sort of like playing a jazz solo. The way you should think is not think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the variations in my life, as far as setting goals, yes, I have set individual goals as I go along and um, the biggest ones probably never hit, never can, never have. Um, the smaller ones, let's say to make a recording project or to write a big piece of music or write a book, um, I've been pretty good at follow through and perseverance on those items. One thing I can do that's not necessarily go with the flow is when you're doing a project of any kind in, the, in and out of music, I'm sure you can relate to this, whether you've uh, done big projects or even written a paper for university where you hit the wall. You start, and you're excited, and the idea is cool, and then there's the bang. And that's where the honeymoon idea is over, and you got to get down to work and figure this out and push through. I call that the point of pain. I'm pretty good at pushing through that. And as you, as you get more ex, um, experience with the end result or what that feels like to push through, and you it becomes part of your normal process so at that the smaller level of setting goals um i'm quite good at following through on those and those are not empty feeling if you're producing something and when i play as a, a an artist it generally makes me feel good to go out and create and play whether you're creating an interpretation of the piece or, or playing on the jazz side of things and that is motivates me in a sort of subconscious way that the, there's a pleasure part of it that's not just um, it's not just hedonistic or selfish. It's it's a motivating energy and kind of a an important aspect that you should acknowledge and recognize. Um, I always wished I had had a shot at a Grammy, for instance, as a specific example of a goal I never even came close to. Um, now I know I know the Grammys are political and there there a lot of there's a lot of politics that goes on and things like that. Way more now even then, but back when we had releases of CDs and before that LPs, it was a little more literal about uh, your record being on charts or not in, in newspapers and on Billboard and radio and records publications and things like that and Downbeat and whatnot. That's a magazine. <laughs> um, those that, that was. Uh, a time when things were a little more literal. Now with streaming and all that stuff, it's even more nebulous. Like how does anybody know what's going on except for the people who study all the data and metadata, right? Um, so I had hoped that I'd had a shot at that and never figured out how to even get on the, on the, on the list for voting. Um, because I do feel in the past, you know, you could like my recordings or not. You can think they're sort of not jazz, not classical, whatever they are, I think there was some things there, particularly a classical one I made with the Budapest Radio Orchestra, trumpet solos of my composition with Symphony Orchestra, that had a shot at being recognized. I notice that once in a while, but I can't say it bugs me every day, you know? Yeah. I just think once in a while, oh, it would have been nice to experience that. And But one final thing is, I've experienced too, when I have gotten some awards, however minor or however, um, flattering, it doesn't really lift me up that much. It's very short-lived. Uh, as far as 
how it makes you feel. It's a wonderful thing to have in your resume and to know that you're acknowledged. That's huge. I mean, it's called, it's a, it's a validation, right? Right. If you didn't get validation from your parents, you can be a very damaged person. But if your dad or mom said good job once in a while, you could be a very en enabled and enthusiastic person. So, but the, the award type validation feedback for me is very short lived as far as the feeling of it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was actually um, just uh, talking with someone about that the other day about the difference between. Um, uh, you know, the, the, your wants and your needs. And, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of times uh, the way I look at it is the, the things that you need are the things that feed your soul and the things that you want are the things that feed your ego. And it's not saying the ego is bad. Ego is a necessary part of our, of our makeup, of our, uh, you know, what makes us these, these conscious uh, beings. But uh, when you when you only chase the things that that make you feel good in the moment, it's it's like uh, the nutritional version of, of eating a lot of sugar. You know, yes. sugar tastes good, gives you energy, but it's also going to give you that crash. Um, you know, and the things that are more nourishing for us uh, in the long term, yeah, you know, maybe aren't the best tasting things, but you know, hey, they, they're going to provide us what, what we need for the the long haul. So I, I think that the problem that a lot of people have is is uh, you know, they don't, they don't have that kind of balanced diet. You know, if, if you, if you never feed your ego, uh, when you, when your ego is kind of crushed down, then it's hard for you to, uh, to find that juice to, to get going and to, to push yourself. Uh, but if you always go by the ego when it's not fed properly, then, uh, uh, you know, that, that's where you start to get that disgruntled nature or the, uh, the, the pompous side, uh, that comes out yeah. and, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it seems that uh, you, know, you you have done that that balancing act of uh, doing the things that that make you uh, feel good about yourself, uh, but also uh, you know ha have a level of impact with other people and, and not allowing that uh, to go to your head, uh, as sometimes people in the artistic world are, are very want to be. Uh, you know, to need all of the accolades to have all of the, the awards. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's an impressive thing. Um, especially well, some of the greatest players like Yo-Yo Ma, for instance, they have their egos way in control and they're wonderful people. When they pick up, when he picks up the cello though, his ego's on full blast, but that's that positive ego you're talking about. Like a quarterback has to have an ego or he'd be a lame quarterback. A, a great trumpet player can't let the ego be squashed or he would never be able to play that instrument well and with great musicality. Um, one of the things though that I keep in perspective and it's not really an effort. I mean, if one were to say, who's the greatest trumpet player in the world? Well, that's a ridiculous question because what's the greatest fruit in the world? You know, apple or an orange? I mean, it's that, that literal. Um, and when I reference myself in that regard, um, see, you see a lot of what I'm doing musically, I'm not really doing for myself. It's sort of a, uh, at least, at least consciously choosing to do that because I do get this feedback and energy I was talking about, which is addictive. And many people, many amateur musicians or whatever have that. They, they, that's why they play trumpet. The doctors and lawyers and people play trumpet through their whole lives as they get this energy back in communication with other people. But my goal is to communicate that energy and musicality and joy to the listener. And that is a huge and powerful um, 
skill and responsibility. Right. Um, so back to the perspective of my playing versus others or something like that in regards to ego, I am, I can, you can compare yourself to, to all kinds of different players, but it's a, it's not very interesting or, or useful because there's always going to be, and you, you'll notice over during COVID with all the YouTube action and the, the volume of new players that you might've found just because there's so, so many people posting, the level that's going on of playing with little young people, especially in specific aspects of playing, right? It's mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, who plays the best jazz time? Who plays the best jazz language? Who plays the cleanest double tongue fast solo passages who plays the best high notes i mean you could list all those people and none of them are better than the other in general and so i'm not a better than anybody ex uh, not even except just but i do have a, have worked on and gone with um, a variety of skills to the best i can do and i do practice um, and i'm doing the best i can so that's what that package has been um, that's what package has been out there for me. And that's why it's continued to be such a varied career for me, which isn't necessarily the best way to go in terms of the business side of things. For instance, management has never, I've, I've had management in the past. I don't now anymore by choice, but management never knew what to do with me because the classical management didn't want me to take jazz gigs and, and the jazz side of things understood. Sure. You could play whatever you want, but I don't know why, I don't even know how to talk to an orchestra. Uh, that kind of thing. So business-wise, it's a, it's goofy. Um, so, but I've just followed my heart and um, ended up with a what I call a lot of slices of the pie. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's certainly um, a lot to be said for that. Uh, that I mean, like for for myself, um, coming to this realization that. Uh, all the varied experiences just give me a different perspective on life. And that's something that I do enjoy. I, I feel that uh, the more things I can experience uh, in, in, in different settings with different people, different cultures, um, they just give me a different outlook on life. They're just all these little pieces of the puzzle that I can start to put together, uh, almost like the, the pixels uh, on a television. You know, and, yeah. you know, when, when I was in my 20s and I, I, I thought I knew it all, uh, I was, you know, I was still looking at that old uh, cathode ray tube TV with, you know, horrible reception. And, you know, and as, as I've gotten older and I've experienced a lot more things now, it's, it's started to come into high def. So I, I think that the more that we can we can do these things, uh, it gives us not only that that internal sense of knowledge and our sense of self, but as an artist, as, as a, a creative, then it gives you uh, a different taste and a different understanding of the needs of, of others. And so you can start to communicate because you have that level of connection that, that someone who hasn't had these levels of experience, you know, they, they have no point of reference. So, uh, you know, I, I stopped looking at uh, the diversity in my life as, as a you know, crap, I can't figure out what the hell I want to do. And more, uh, more like the, you know, Hey, this, this, this has all come together and it's put me in this very unique perspective. So, uh, and, and I know that for you is a huge thing that, you know, you have, uh, so many players that were drawn to you because of the jazz work you did, uh, you know, uh, earlier in your career, 
Uh, yeah, I, I remember the first time I heard you was, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you uh, did with uh, Chick Corea, and which I'd love to talk about Chick a little bit later on. Um, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, your, your first, uh, your first solo album, I remember hearing it and going, uh, I hate this guy. And <laughs> yeah, uh, but then, you know, it was like, oh, well, you know, then here's these classical recordings and then, and hearing that and then hearing your compositions and it was, it, but the jazz was the gateway, you know, and if you never did that, then I maybe had never become introduced to the things that you do. So I think that the, the more ability that we have to communicate with people using the language that they speak uh, most fluently uh, helps us to communicate the, the grander ideas and the, the energies that we're trying to, to channel through us. Absolutely. And in a, in a practical uh, sense, those people out there who, well, just, let me just toss out, you will be, I'm talking about instrumentalists uh, basically, but maybe applications elsewhere. Um, you will benefit if you study a variety of things, but when, they, when you are told to follow your heart, you should follow your heart at something you're good at, not just follow your heart. Because there are a lot of frustrated players who are not great, they don't interface well with an instrument, but they have good ideas and could apply them elsewhere. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's really important. And the idea that uh, you study a variety of things helps you to be a more a better all-around person, musician, and instrumentalist. Therefore, have more opportunities coming your way and to be able to create more. Create more. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember uh, we were talking uh, prior to the recording. Uh, we were talking about when, when we first met, which was uh, you were doing a, a performance with uh, the Hershey Symphony and doing a master class uh, the night before. And you said something that really resonated with me. And uh, you were talking about uh, multiple tonguing and how uh, we've set multiple tonguing up uh, within the, 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 the trumpet world as being this uh, extremely difficult uh, high level skill to master. And you said, no, it's, it's yeah, I can, I can take, you know, a kid that, that's just picking up the horn and, and get them to, to multiple tongue just because you, know, you, you have a way of breaking it down into its most simplistic nature, uh, which just it, immediately it, it set off all kinds of, uh, of you know, connections with, with other related concepts. But, but that whole thing of it's, it's not as difficult as we make it, it, it there the, the, to master something is difficult because it's going to take the time and the energy to master it so that it, it can be there when you want it, how you want it. But that the process of actually starting and learning is, is super simplistic. So was that always something that you felt or was that, was that like a, a discovery that you could pinpoint and say, yeah, this was the time where, where it all kind of made sense to me uh, that, that we have this kind of mental block about some of the, the technical aspects of playing. I, uh, came, I came into these ideas. I started to think about these things for the purposes of teaching and clinics a little later. Um, after I haven't gone through the process of growing up, my dad is my teacher, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so I generally re uh, reverse engineered some of the techniques I had developed and learned and studied so that I could talk about them in an intelligent and clear as a clear way, as clear as possible anyway. And the whole tonguing thing is an example. My dad would introduce me, he was a self-taught trumpet player, um, 
never played professionally, but he taught me until I went to Eastman School of Music. And so we had weekly lessons, but he also would guide me a few minutes if he was walking by my bedroom where I practiced. Pretty much every day he would either lay on my bed next to me while I practiced or just walk by and say, you know, this or that. And that kind of guidance um, led him to keep tossing things out to me. And at one point when I was maybe, let me think for just a second, 12 years old, something like that, maybe a little bit later, he wrote out some practice guides. He wrote down pages I should practice of the Arden book and the Charlie and this and that. And um, he, he later told me he put down about 10 times more material than he thought I could get through in a week. And I would plow through this stuff. Now that doesn't mean that I mastered it or anything, but I was, I never, because he was a, an authority figure and could play pretty well himself. Um, I never thought that there was anything the least bit silly or not, or, or crazy about the idea of just going through this list. And here was my dad who is the head of the house and teaches us all things in that, and my mom too, um, said to do it, so I'm gonna do it. And that was the challenge. And if he had just said, well, don't practice multiple tonguing until you're, uh, you can play high C or you're in high school because it's very difficult, that would have been terrible. Right. And so those kind of re reverse engineered ideas led me to discover and to think about the idea of, of not, if, if a player begins and has a good setup and you're able to get them to blow through the instrument in a steady, relaxed, and very kind of energetic way. Great support, great core sound is, is a key element. Uh, then before you learn to practice a lot of bad habits, you can get a lot of stuff in there. Uh, perhaps interesting observation, the Arben book has A above the staff written in the second page. This is supposed to be a complete guide to the cornet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you think Arben thought that that was a high note in terms of, of uh, what young players should be able to do? I think that you probably could teach uh, a young player in a very short period of time to play above the staff. We do have some good systems. Well, we, we do have some good ideas about how to teach beginners, but some of them also are... Uh, we're teaching them to not succeed in certain ways. Like when an artist, or let's say an art teacher tells a kid who's a brilliant artist in the second grade, if you've ever seen kids art at a school, it's all, you could frame everything. Yeah. Then they tell the kid, well, you know, I'm not saying they actually do this, but if it happens, um, the teacher might say, well, you know, the sky is blue and trees are green. Okay, you just ruined him. Yeah. Right? <laughs> as far as art goes. Right. Unless they're a free thinker. But anyway, um, that, so that's, that's kind of reverse engineering, engineering idea contributed to what I wrote in my books. And uh, as a teacher clinician, and I, I do some Zoom teaching, a lot of one-off things, and I'm open to that uh, for any of your listeners too. Vizudi.com, you can get my uh, contact info. Um, I've uh, learned as I've, I've refined things as I've gone along so that some of my clinic points that come up a lot are more succinct and more uh, clear than ever. Yeah. I hope you think. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I'm sure they are because, I mean, I know for my, myself that uh, I, 
was actually having a conversation with with a, a bandmate about this uh, last night that um, yeah in my my careers as a as a martial arts instructor uh, I you know for three decades you know for for over thirty years teaching uh, you know tens of thousands of people so I got really good at teaching really fundamental stuff because I had so many different ways I had to learn to explain it. Uh, and what made sense to me at the beginning of my teaching career, uh, I look back and go, man, you, you were really, you, 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 you weren't quite there. But then after refining it and getting, like I said earlier, kind of getting those different perspectives and different ways of explaining things and, and, and framing things, it just made it so much easier. Uh, and you know, the, what I love about what you're saying is that, you know, the, the thoughtful process of, of reverse engineering, figuring out the things that work for you and not just that they work for you, which is kind of a dogmatic approach, but to, to actually look at things and like, well, why did that work and how can this be uh, utilized to, to be the framework then of, of, of future things? So that's, that's yeah, really, we do, to, um, we do have to fine tune right to each student or player, let's just say player, the best we can as we get to know them. But a lot of those things are quite easy to assess because you have different personality categories, the more linear engineering type, and then the free flowing musical, uh, don't fence me in type, you know? Right. Uh, what you said, which martial arts do you? Uh, I was uh, a Tai Chi teacher for Kung Fu. Uh, yeah, so all kinds of Chinese martial arts. Yeah, well, there's so many. I'm. I have not taken martial arts, but I imagine so many parallels with what we're talking about yeah. in terms of and studying and uh, work ethic and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Chinese, uh, the, what we call uh, Chinese martial arts, usually in the United States, you know, people say Kung Fu uh, and Chinese is actually Gong Fu. And it literally yeah. means a skill that you get through time and hard work. It doesn't mean martial arts. It just means you just you put the hours in. You put in the hours and, and, and have the attitude. So, uh, yeah, and uh, that it's it's a way of, of becoming successful at anything. So you, you can I'll toss in here because you said put the hours in, which is fabulous, a perspective note. Um, and that is that especially any player and, and amateur type players who have limited time to play their instrument, but love playing it will be happy to hear this, that I believe with the great fundamentals, which always will be there. You must have good fundamentals to, to embellish and create on top of that, the techniques we use and that help us express our music. Um, you don't have to practice five hours a day. You right. do not. If you practice every day, of course there's a vacation now and then for a couple of days or whatever. But if you, let's say in general, practice every day for an hour and it's organized with a warm up and some technical things and some music are not necessarily equal time, and you find some material that you love to play, um, sight reading and all that's wonderful, you gotta do it. But as far as establishing fundamental sound and relaxation and suppleness, if you, a uh, great warm up, for instance, like you can try the one in front of my method books, they're, they're, it's really useful. Um, you can improve uh, and, and stay at a high consistency, which is really a, one of the main things about trumpet playing is your consistency level, right? You can play great. If you play wonderfully some of the time and terrible some of the time, it's a little hard to have you in the band. Yeah. You play pretty well all the time. 
or really well all the time with good intonation and style and things like that. You're the guy we want in the band, whether it's fourth trumpet or first trumpet. Um, so I'm, I'm saying that you don't have to practice five, six hours a day. And if you do have time and are motivated, let's say a young professional or a student to practice many hours a day, keep in mind that you can actually practice too much. I know this is a little backwards from what you're used to hearing sometimes, but if you get to the point where you have an issue later after practicing or the next day where you're, you're more stiff um, and it takes you longer and longer, longer to warm up and get supple again, or your range is compressing top and bottom, you're practicing too much for your ability to take um, the wear and tear. It's not really injury or anything. It's just a matter of making you stiff. And um, you could take more breaks or practice a little less or practice in shorter snippets more often, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I read a lot about, uh, you know, psychology, uh, neuropsychology, things like that. Um, mm. And the there's uh, studies that were done by uh, Jay Andrews Erickson, who I think is at the uh, University of Central Florida now. I uh, can't remember, but um, it's basically the, the that's where uh, the, the whole 10,000 hour rule came from, which he's like, no, that was mis that was misunderstood or, you know, improperly appropriated. But it's, it's that idea that it takes time and it takes a specific type of practice, which he calls a dedicated practice or deliberate practice um, to make achievement. And. Uh, while that 10,000 hours became kind of, uh, that was kind of like a, an easy to, to point to number. It's like, well, it depends on the, the complexity of uh, the task at hand. And if there were already uh, skill sets or attributes that supported that skill, uh, that maybe, you know, someone could take less time because they had already some level of skills that, that would facilitate that. But uh, his big thing was, you know, that that it has to be fully engaged practice. And the problem that we run into is this, that you got to spend five, six, seven hours in your practice room. Uh, most of that time is unproductive. You know, uh, you, the, the, you're not you're not being present. So, you know, um, it's that idea of it, it's better to to practice six times a day for. 10 minutes where you're just completely engaged than it is to, to sit down and practice an hour of which, you know, 50 minutes of that was, was almost wasted time. I think the warm up is really uh, important. If you have a organized warm up that core, of course it can have variations to it, but say fundamentally the elements in your warm up are organized and you have, a, uh, it doesn't have to be a specific routine, but I, I have a routine of uh, types of thing that I do, uh, that vary harmonically and whatever. <clears throat> um, that helps focus you. You can use that to focus yourself on a daily basis. When you don't feel like practicing because it's a beautiful summer day and everybody's recreating in the backyard and you didn't practice yet, if you find your way to your basement where you practice and you sit down and say, I'll do my warm up, that can pull you in. And then your discipline does have to kick in. Um, a lot of the time it becomes fun because you can make little challenges for yourself. You know, have a stack of books next to your where you practice or within reach of music that's music or pieces, sonatas, concertos, um, not necessarily all difficult, Charlier, any of my material, etude books, duet books that have play-alongs, things like that in jazz or classical. Then it becomes fun and you are mentally focused. And that's what those moments when you look and go, wow, it's been an hour already. I'm no wonder I'm getting a little bit um, 
tired or, or feel some stiffness or whatever, or just feel like I've been playing hard. Whoa, I haven't taken many breaks, that kind of thing. Yeah. That can be really huge. Um, I will say, though, at the very minimal, if <clears throat> when I'm on the road, for instance, I may go somewhere um, that's a real long trip, 18, 20, 24 hour kind of trip, and get somewhere and have an evening rehearsal or the next morning rehearsal with an orchestra or something like that, or with a pianist to run a whole program before a concert. I've got to play. Being focused with a practice mood at night in a hotel room in a foreign country where you can touch the walls of the hotel room by stretching out your arms uh, and the bed is like 10 inches wide and hard as a rock. That is tough as far as focus goes. And the only reason I use that kind of metaphor is to say that it does do some good on the trumpet to go through a routine, even if it's mindless, because the physical interface with your embouchure and your body is hugely important. Also the daily basis thing on a daily basis to have that. That's what ma- maintains the suppleness of the muscles and this, of the tissue and everything. Um, as far as really growing and being a great musician, or I go back to what you said with total agreement that you got to be engaged as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's so challenging because, uh, uh there's the physical demands of the instrument. Uh, the, the trumpet is, is unforgiving, uh, yeah. which is, which is actually a good thing. You know, uh, you, you can't, you, you can't fool it. <laughs> you know, you, you might be able to fool other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but so there, there's like, you're saying the physical interface, but, um, then uh, there, there's the, uh, the the mental and the emotional, spiritual interfaces that we have with, with the instrument and, and the music itself. Uh, and it's the magic happens when all of those align. You know, when, when, when the, the mechanism is right, the, the technique is right, the ideas are right, the uh, emotion, the intention is right. When all of that gets into alignment, that's, that's when the beauty happens. But um, to do that requires... Um, it does require practice. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think that, that sometimes we, we focus so much on technical aspects, uh, and not the, the joy, the emotion, the, you know, the, the things that make music an art. Uh, and, and if you, and if you only focus on those, but don't focus on the technique, then you're limited in your ability to express those things. You know, you don't, you don't have a, uh, a solid enough foundation to be able to to do what you want to do. So it's it's finding that right ratio, but I don't think you can exclude one aspect and really be able to uh, to do what we we need to do on the instrument. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. There's no silver bullet or magic elixir. You, we make it very mysterious, but the fact is you just got to mix it up. And be smart about your practice and re- remember the fundamentals of a deep, beautiful, relaxed breath in. And I mean relaxed. And turn the air around as if it's one motion and blow against the resistance of the horn in a comfortable fashion. 
And that's the fundamental you need to, I think will help everyone on any instrument right now. And the, uh, the notion of <clears throat> being caught up in technique, we're not only caught up in technique, but we, we have become very good at practicing bad habits and making them standard default setting. Yeah. It can be hand position. It can be breathing uh, in a shallow way. It can be overblowing. It can be too much pressure. That's a good one. We never use too little pressure, only too much. So back off. Okay. He writes a whole volume of books on playing without pressure on the trumpet. No, no. It's, I'll do it in one paragraph, or one sentence. Two, two, I'll do it in two words. Back off. Now, how do you teach somebody to back off? Because we're talking about little microns of movement. I don't know. By feel. Yeah. You know? If you put your hand on something and I say, don't touch it, back off on your touching it, you're going to do something that's a little lighter. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah. So we, we practice bad habits for sure. And that's why going back to a point, points about, uh, we talked about earlier about beginners trying what we, were describing, we had described as more advanced techniques. They haven't learned mistakes yet that many. They haven't learned that something is difficult. They haven't been told that. So they just do it. Yeah. But you have to do that for yourself. You have to decide something like, I need to play uh, above high C a little bit more to practice some notes I can't play that well. Well, you just have to assess, okay, what makes it work? The air has to go faster and I have to use some pressure, but not too much. Okay, I just legitimized pressure uh, against mouthpiece on lip pressure. Oops, but it's true, it's there. <laughs> we just have to use less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's our, that's, that's our tendency uh, is that when we adjust, we don't necessarily adjust. We overcompensate for things. Uh, it's kind of, it's like human nature. So, uh, you know, if, if someone says you need to blow a little bit more, put a little more air through the horn, it's, it's not like, you know, increasing the, the PSI by, you know, point one yeah. it's like open up the fire hose and let it go yeah. so it, it's it's yeah. that patience and that um that ability to, to be subtle in your action and just change one thing and change it a little bit and then you know just kind of keep doing that until you find that that sweet spot i love what you just said change it a little bit because um i find that i i suggest this all the time and i don't hear coming out of practice rooms experimentation that much and by that i mean you said change things a little bit well let's say whatever the the item of technique you're changing you should change a little and a lot and get a feel for what you like and what works and what is easy to play and what isn't um you know i don't mean bust your chops with pressure what i mean is if you're trying a dynamic play really, really as softly as you can sometimes. And then for just a few seconds, really gross and loud and get that um, perspective on, on those abilities. And those abilities grow when you do that. Yeah, um, That's very useful actually. And I don't hear much experimentation going on with those kind of things. Play a line where the accents are on the wrong notes. Not, you would never play the music that way. Um, you know, um, like da, 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 da. Just to wake up your, your, the, that was good singing on the Haydn. Yeah. Um, but that's to wake up your muscles in your brain, you know, instead of always like the, like a recording, you got to mix it up a little bit. That really can help difficult passages too, uh, where you place 
accents in places where you won't end up doing it when you perform the music. Mm -hmm. And uh, it comes, another thing comes to mind when you mentioned the mixing up, how do we mix up or how do we think about mixing up technique with musicality and make the music happen the way we want. I have discovered, we, we, of course, we do, do need to practice, as you and I alluded to already, all these sort of uh, elements. One thing I've had good success with on myself, so it's not a mystery, and with um, uh, teaching is when you are having a situation with a passage of music um, that it's just not going the way you want or you repetitively make mistakes or something, endeavor to make the next pass on it as musically, musical as possible. Think about the beauty and the shape and allow yourself to make mistakes. Now, this is another, in the old school, that would be, oh, taboo. We don't want, no. The, the, you know, the inner game and the psychology you were talking about with the neuroscience and all that, if you allow yourself to make mistakes, you make less, fewer mistakes. If you worry about making mistakes, you make more mistakes. In general, that's a very big generalization from a non-scientist. But when you think musically about something, the tendency is to get carried away with the beauty of the phrase and allow yourself to play at a high level of what your capability is. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. That that is beautiful. That's music to my ears. So, uh, uh, and I I think that, that if there's only if there's one takeaway I got from from uh, this little discussion so far has been. Uh, that I need to get T-shirts that say Alan Vizzuti says back off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! There was one of those. Do you remember Yosemite Sam from the cartoons? I certainly show? do. They were, yeah, he always said back off. Yeah, with the mustache and cowboy hat, and he, there were T-shirts like that with him on it. So yeah. I'll, I'll leave it up to Yosemite Sam. Oh, uh, I think I, I think that that would be a big seller at uh, at every trumpet convention. The uh, the Vizzuti says back off. <laughs> well, then it should just have a picture of a mouthpiece or something, maybe. Yeah, there there you go, there you go. Um, uh, like I said before, I wanted it to uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, about your time with with Chick uh, yeah. because um, you know uh, you know we we just lost him recently and. I think that he was he was certainly one of those transcendent uh musicians uh he he did so many amazing things um and uh and and was a a a champion for so many uh rising stars uh in in the world of music brought brought so many talents to to the table um so you know, you you were you were fortunate enough to play with him for a while and and uh, you know what are some of the takeaways that you got from from your time with him and how did did your work with him influence your your perspective uh, not just on music but in life in general? Yeah, thank you. He was an amazing, wonderful man. Um, obviously, his loss is quite a shock, especially since it came on so quickly. And except for the problems like that ended his life, he was very vibrant and healthy and energetic up until the last short period. And I don't, I'm not privy to the exact details of that, but we were always, we, my family and I were always taken with his energy and his, his um, happiness and his um, positivity and his just joy of the arts. So I met him when I was on right out of university, when I toured with the Woody Herman big band on the road he wrote a piece of music for a, a recording 
that was for the Woody Herman band. So I met him, we crossed paths in his home area of Boston and he rehearsed us on this new piece. And that's where I met him and he first heard me. Then some time, about a year and a half later, I was asked to join his band um, recommendation, but he also knew who I was. So the things converged and he, I joined a band of his that was four brass, four strings and uh, the rhythm section players. And we toured three months out of the United States. And during that period, I had only one or two solos in the evening. It was all, all playing section parts. It was his, his music from Spanish Heart and uh, Mad Hatter and then New Things also that we recorded later. And then after that period, um, there were some tours that I really was able to make with him. Uh, it was just a thrill of a lifetime to play in a, a sextet with them, um, one trumpet and, you know, the requisite soloing and difficult charts and all that, which was a very big challenge and a huge education for me. Chick as a person um, also was very open. So I got to know him and we would, he would invite me to do some projects. We both were in LA at his house. He'd call me in the middle of the night and say, can you come over and record this part for me? Things like that. And that interaction led to some uh, personal moments where and just spending time on the road together where we talked about things. And he was a person who said, there can't be enough artists in the world. The world needs more artists. Um, when you improvise, just play what you like. Um, when uh, uh, rehearsing was, was monumentally important too. When he would write these very, and rhythmically very challenging. Um, we would rehearse before a tour for a couple of weeks in, in sound studios in LA. And there was a one interesting moment from the music, from the rehearsal side where he had the band play quarter notes, bop, bop, any note, bop, 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 for 20 minutes. Wow. And he said to the, you know, he said to the horns, just take your horn down. Don't, don't play when you don't want to, but just stand there and then come back in. And he wanted to establish a communication and a time uh, coordination that he wasn't feeling. Now, to me, the rehearsal before that exercise was going great because it was such a high level. But anyway, that's an example. Now, as in later years, when he would come to Seattle with a group and play here and ask me to come down and sit in uh, one of our jazz uh, venues that's most popular and, and most uh, kind of one of the better places to go for smaller group jazz type things. Cause Chick liked to do big halls and all that, but he also liked to do intimate, more intimate places was the place is called jazz alley here. So I would go down and sit and sit in, but this is much later where I have kids and they're around their twenties, for instance, three of them, two boys and a girl. And we would go down and go to the thing, the, the concert, the presentation and Chick would come out and sit with us and my kids, uh, who all were in music, but my daughter is a, mus a musician. She's a percussionist, a violinist, and a teacher, um, would sit and talk about music. And here are the parents, just quiet, and Chickory is talking about the goodness of music and interacting with life and spending all this time inspiring and communicating and joking with our kids. And just to watch the delight in their eyes. And then there was one point, for instance, at Jazz Alley where this was going on 
And the road, I mean, the, the stage manager came over and kind of tapped Chip on the chick on the shoulder because it was between shows. And he said, uh, Mr. Korea, could we please start? We're five minutes late. Oh, yeah, sure. And he just goes up on stage and bam, burn it out. And uh, there were so many moments. I played at Chick's wedding, actually. He oh. asked me to play wedding to Gail Moran in L.A. And um, I wrote a piccolo piece and played it. This was a very low-key thing, very low-key. Mm -hmm. uh, just a few friends. And um, it was so, it, the loss of him on earth was one of the things that hit me, one of the losses that hit me harder than I expected. Not just because, I mean, there are many, many people who had a more intimate and more long-term and more frequent interaction with him than me. But one thing I noticed in the, uh, the uh, what do you call those accolades that come in, you know, on the internet and all the, all the the comments and um, I'm not thinking of the word, but you know, when, when they're all saying experiences and um, thoughts for everyone and good wishes and all that. One of the things that was per pervasive through all of those, those uh, postings was how personal each person felt. It was like he was best friends and mentor and a, counselor and a musician friend of all of these people every one of them felt the same thing yeah that is amazing and i'm not surprised having known him uh the other thing i would just like to add because i know i get a little long-winded is to me I, I call him the mozart of jazz not to his face but because that wasn't necessary at all because uh, he would just scoff and say you know whatever but with people, when I'm describing his abilities, when I was in the room with him playing, I am a pretty accomplished musician and I felt like a beginner, both mus musically and somewhat technically, um, in certain aspects of jazz. Not in a bad way, but just a realization like, okay, this is a level of genius that you don't experience much. Mm -hmm. And his compositions, I know he left a pile of unplayed compositions this high for sure, because he was just cranking stuff out all the time. He, his creativity was a full-on faucet. And his personality was like that, actually. He, he could overdo uh, eating, he could overdo, um, not partying, he had that under control, because as a young man, when he played with Miles Davis, he re, with Miles Davis, he realized that if he got into the partying direction and some of the, you know, things that are chemical or whatever, he was not gonna do well. Yeah. Realized that early and kept that all under control and never got involved with any of that stuff. And I think Scientology actually helped him a lot in that regard. Whatever you think about that, I know that it helped him and that he was a wonderful, wonderful person. And I'm so happy to have brushed uh, shoulders with him in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I mean, obviously he had, uh, a level, like you're saying, a level of mastery, a level of genius that is very rare. But he also had, uh, yeah, I, I never met him, um, but you always got that sense that you could just sit down with him and, and drink a cup of tea and, and, and talk and talk about music and talk about life and, and just be in the presence of someone who just enjoyed the beauty of the human spirit and it came through in his music and it, it just came through in everything that he did and it's 
it, it's interesting to me because uh, one that he did it, but but it it puts things in perspective that um, you know we all have that ability, and we we may not have the ability to play or com- compose like him, but we have that ability to to be that positive force. Uh, in the in the lives of others around us, and and to be that uplifting person, to be the uh, the example that that people need to see that you know that humanity is is not as doomed as sometimes uh, the news would make us uh, believe. I think that's a very astute and important and a true observation. And when you say that that kind of um, joy and positivity and sharing affects everyone and he was global and he was so well known that it was a huge effect. Don't forget that in your own community, in your own family, in your own school, um, it's equally important. Yes, it may be fewer in numbers when you first interact with people in this fashion and present that kind of energy that helps everyone. But remember exponentially as these people go out and be part of the world that you've affected in this positive way, it really, it sounds almost cliched and corny, but it really does help the world. And we need that all the time. Um, we've always needed it. And, you know, when weird things go on in one's lifetime, you think, oh, this is the time we really need it. Well, I'm sure that's happened to every generation. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, that's that's he was he was a, a an ambassador for that sort of um, feeling and and situation it was fabulous yeah yeah and i mean and and uh, you certainly do that as well i mean uh i've been able to to attend a few master classes you've done different uh different events uh you know even in in your performances and things like that there's uh there's that sense that uh you know that you're using music as the method to communicate with others and to, you know, share the things that are important to you with them and to, at the end of the day, just kind of make life a little bit better for, for everyone. You know, your, your vehicle is your music, you know, you have other people, maybe it's their dance, uh, your, you know, uh, football player, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, doing something that knowing that, that you have others that are, their, their lives are, are, uh, hopefully going to be a little better because of, of what you can bring to the table. So um, in terms of like your, your educational stuff and, and your, you know, when you're doing master classes and, and uh, doing these, these guest artist things, particularly like when you go to a high school, um, when you're looking out there and, and you're seeing the state of uh, trumpet players, you know, we'll be specific because we are the best instrumentalists in the world. Uh, when, uh, don't let your wife hear that. Uh, uh, when you, when you're looking at P at, at these groups, um, what are the things that, that you kind of say, man, I, I, I need, I feel like I need to say this to this group because, uh, so many people have been fed, you know, misinformation or, uh, you know, uh, the, the things that, that, that have been missing in, our current uh, society, our current educational system, uh, the things that, that the, the up and coming, coming players really should know about what being a trumpet player is really like. No surprises there. I, I usually, uh, I always get to, no matter where it is in the session, for instance, uh, the fundamental thing <clears throat> that we talked a lot about as a, as a basis for improving on the instrument, because not improving on the instrument, you, 
have high attrition or great frustration. Um, <clears throat> I always try to be as positive as I can in the situations, but I will say that I'm not without honesty. If I come across a situation where it needs to be called out, and that's not the best, best, way to, best way to put it, let's say pointed out, um, I will do that. <clears throat> and I'm gonna get to that in a second with an example, but the, uh, the notion that I, naivete and perspective on life with your music in, in um, explain the correct nature of that, meaning there are a lot of young players out there who do pretty well and are number one in their small community and want to be professional trumpet players. Well, what does that even mean? Uh, so in that whole world of the fact that trumpet as a business, trumpet as, an, as a vocation is really, really difficult I am honest about that and I try to point that out um, without being dark and I won't even go down that road if I if when I after which I've said something that has to do with the fact that I'm here to help you play and communicate uh, play as best you, the best as best you can and improve and communicate your musical uh, capabilities and your musical message I'm not here to talk to you as if you might become a professional player so that uh, helps me a lot. When I was artist in res residence at the University of Washington, uh, some a trumpet teacher named Roy Cummings had passed away suddenly and they asked me to step in and I did and then they said, well, would you like to go on for a year to year contract just to teach some lessons? I said, sure, no academia, right? No meetings, yeah, all that. So yeah, that's fine. So I just taught some lessons there over a course of years actually. And during auditions for admissions to the school, music school, there was a young man who came from California, he and his parents came from California. And he was a handsome guy, really high SATs. Uh, the University of Washington is no slouch school, even though it's a state school. They have fabulous medicine and technology, uh, brain. Um, um, there's so many fabulous world-class areas in the University of Washington, the music is a little bit of a, an uncle in the attic or um, a child that is a little neglected, unfortunately, for a school that's 40,000 people. But anyway, auditions. And so the family shows up and the kid came in, handsome dude, brand new Bach instrument, whatever. He could barely play. He played his audition piece and his amateur was just completely wrong. I mean, it was to the point where he played five or six notes and after he said, and it was to the point where I could not fathom, no matter how um, uneducated you are in a field, I'm talking about his parents now, and their uneducation about trumpet and music, that you wouldn't know that this is not going to be successful. It's like a kid who's <clears throat> playing baseball and can, holds the bat backwards and doesn't know what to do when the ball flies across the plate and then hits the umpire over the head. I mean, <clears throat> it was that. So I find I had to take him out because we were on a committee there. There was a few, there were a few people. I went out, which was unusual um, after his short audition. And I talked to the parents and I said, he not only won't get in, he cannot play the trumpet. He's not competitive. And I don't mean to be harsh, but you're going to waste your money if he comes to music school, there's no future in this. And I'm hoping, and I think now after all these years, they look back and go, wow, I'm glad he told us that. So I can be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And so I just find that to be practical and, and necessary. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's the, the, the truth. I'm trying to, there, there's like the four filters, um, you know, the, you know, is it, is it, uh, true? Is it, uh, necessary? Is it helpful? I guess it's three filters. Uh, schools, like yeah, preschool or something. Yeah. That is an acronym. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, th- that's, um, I, I, yeah, there, there's sometimes, yeah, you do, you do have to, to, to give the harsh truths, but when it's done from, from a perspective of, you know, this is a truth and this is, this is, an, this is something that, that is going to be beneficial in the long run. It may not feel good right now, but, uh, this is, this is done from a place of, it's done from a place of love and caring as opposed to, you know, just, just being harsh to be harsh, yeah. you know? So well, yeah. that, that's, that's the main point of that whole uh, picture is very true. You're not trying to be mean. It's, there's nothing about it. You're just trying to help someone do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, Alan, we have uh, two segments that we need to get through to uh, today before uh, I can, I can uh, set you free from your sentence with me. Um, and uh, the first one is uh, the obligatory, obligatory, uh, discussion about equipment. This is our geared up segment. So we're going to talk a little bit about gear, not, not, uh, not in a, a tremendous amount of detail unless you want to. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody asks, you know, the, the same typical questions, you know, what, what mouthpiece do you pay? What's the best mouth, best mouthpiece for this? Blah, 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 horn. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, about what you're playing, but, but specifically your approach to equipment. Yeah, because I think what you play is much less important than why you play what you play. Oh, yeah. Well, that makes sense. I, I have been a Yamaha artist since 1980, uh, exclusively, really, um, no games. And the reason is um, I helped them through evaluation, not through design, to um, develop their trumpet line. I mean, I was one of many and have stuck with them because of their supportive education and their fabulous instruments and the familial um, feeling with the Yamaha people and the whole package. Um, there's not a lot of money involved, but they do support educational events to some degree, just to say that there's, there's a benefit there too. I do not get free instruments. I get, essentially they're free because they're artist loan. So that uh, Yamaha always owns the instruments in other words, I couldn't sell them, for instance, if I, if I had a, a wanted to, to liquidate um, or horns that I'm not using. So horns I don't use, I send back. Um, we have, at this stage in life, um, the whole set of Yamahas are world class. So if you like Yamahas that you try, if you're looking for an instrument, you probably like most of them. If it's not your style of instrument, then you move on to something else. I'm all for the best instrument for you is the one you like the sound of the best and one that suits you. They do make a whole, the entire line of instruments well beyond the ones that I have. I mean, from, from normal B-flat and C-trumpets to G-piccolo and all these other horns that are more specialized. But I have a kind of a normal set of instruments. I don't have a lot of duplicates, a couple. And, and the last thing is, in the, a few years ago, we came up with a Vizzuti model, uh, the V9335 uh, V B-flat. And... Um, that is a 
it, they, they had given me permission to start from scratch with parts. Um, rather than do that, Bob Malone and Wayne Tanabe, the two important gurus and masters of craft, craftsmanship at Yamaha, East Coast and West Coast, worked together, uh, started with the horn that I liked in, that I was using at that time um, and made a few tweaks in it and came up with the horn that is one of the best, if not the best that I've ever played in terms of my needs. Now, so enough on Yamaha, uh, moving on to, I mean, I guess the question was kind of why am I drawn to or what am I looking for? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's ease, there's ease of tone production. In other words, too much resistance or too open is not gonna work for me. That's basically kind of bore size. Um, and so you have a lot of choices there. Uh, sound quality and harmonic structure is huge. When we got the Bazzuti model, I did grab a Bach trumpet from a student of mine and take it to New York because I like the sound on it. Um, kind of typical Bach sound, kind of buttery and nice. And within an hour and a half of working on the new horn, when I would test the two horns for people coming in and out of the, the uh, facility in New York City, which one do you like better? Everybody picked the Yamaha, sound-wise. Uh, so for whatever description, I feel like we kind of built the, the harmonic structure with my, the mouthpiece is a huge part of this, by the way, but the harmonic structure of the sound I was getting was the much more broad and, and uh, warm. Uh, my tendency too is not to go for sizzle. I have enough of that in what I do and with my equipment. My tendency is to go for a horn that has a pushing, and I use this with quotation marks, but darker. It's not gonna be dead kind of heavy metal, the trumpet made by the Hummer Corporation. Yeah. Lead weight dead. It's gonna be just not as dark as some of the horns with a mouthpiece that's medium to small, for instance. And I go for sound a lot. And then if I get really specific, what I like to check is the intonation in the middle register, for instance, if a D in the staff is flat, you need to rethink because you can't fix that. Um, the scale's good, very close. Of course, our low C sharp and D are gonna be sharp. Uh, but above high C, if it doesn't close off on me or too much uh, with the resistance that I am comfortable with, which is not a measurable quantity, it's by feel. Um, and the new horn accomplishes a more open upper register, let's say from, from high C to a four ledge line G written. And those are kind of my priorities, basically sound and then the resistance or balanced resistance feel. Um, the construction quality is what it is, plus it's high class with the Yamaha. You know, I've been to Japan 49 times and the factory a bunch of times. And it's, and I've been to factories in China, brass factories in China, for instance. Yamaha's factory is pretty shockingly amazing. Yeah. And clean and efficient. And um, yes, they're in it for the money. Yes, they make great student horns and a lot of them. But they don't cut a lot of corners where they could cut some corners because they want it to be high quality yeah. and um, last. Yeah. Well, you know, and what you said about the, uh, the D being in yeah. tune um i've never heard that and that's a great point and and uh i you know and that's kind of the reason why i i want to ask these kind of questions to to players is because you know 
there are so many people that that are looking for new gear or having problems with the gear they have um, and trying to get ideas on how to actually evaluate you know and what what makes a horn obviously there's always the feel of the personal uh, preferences and stuff like that but but if you're trying something out what you know what are your baselines you know what are the what are the like the top three things that you should do to to test a horn to to see that this is something that's going to be workable you know besides what finish it has you know so uh thank you for that that point i think that that's that's something to add to the arsenal there were some old bench trumpets that old now bench trumpets because i had uh, during university years, I played bench for a while, and on the road, I was playing bench with Woody Herman's band, and the D in the staff was flat. And I struggled with that. It made you tired, you know? Yeah. yeah. So if we move on a little bit quickly to the mouthpiece, um, I um, have worked on a mouthpiece design just per- periodically over many years. When I went on the road with Woody Herman, I didn't want to play a pea shooter, but I wanted to go a little smaller than my more classical gear from school time. Uh, and I didn't really have a specific mouthpiece in mind, but long story short is I came up with a design that's very middle of the road. And I came up with it, it was through experimentation, having mouthpieces made in New York and Chicago at Schilke and at um, uh, Giardinelli and um, Pepper, a guy that used to be in Manhattan a long time ago. Just having them make stuff and try them and, you know, most of them just ended up in a box somewhere not useful for me. <clears throat> and then when I found something that was sort of, the diameter is halfway between a Bach um, three and a five. So Bach doesn't make a four, but it would be like a four. And the cup is on the medium to shallow side, but it's a bowl shape, not a V. And I would have that copied periodically. And so what happened was manufactured, when I was traveling, I could go at different cities, I would have it copied or do it by mail. And well, you couldn't really copy it by mail, come to think of it. So I had to be there. And um, sometimes the mouthpiece played a little easier. I didn't know why, but they had different, you know, each manufacturer had different tools, different blanks, different shapes on the outside, different, you know, right. there was the jet tone and the Shilke and the Bach and the Bob Reeves. They all were shaped differently. Joe Marcinkowitz, et cetera, et cetera. And they played differently. And I, I would just switch immediately to the one that worked best. Now, this wasn't very often. This is months or years apart. And it led me to a Yamaha mouthpiece that I could play now and be happy to play now. Um, and it's for sale. Just if you ever need a point of reference and a friend has one, you can see what it's about. It's a little small for a lot of people, but for some reason I can play smaller mouthpieces a little more classically than some other people. I do struggle with big, big mouthpieces and think that a lot of time they're too inefficient for everyone. You know, the one and a quarter C is not really a great mouthpiece for most people, I don't think. Um, I just say that to say that um, I do have struggle with those mouthpieces and the sound that I get is not beautiful either. So I'm somewhere in the middle there. And P- I play Peter Pickett mouthpieces now. He took my Yamaha mouthpiece and copied it. And whatever difference is, it's a little easier to play for me. As I mentioned, if I the mouthpiece by Yamaha is still out there and for sale. And if you've got one, don't worry about it. It's a really nice mouthpiece. And I'm not saying that the Pickett one would be better. Uh, but for me, it was a little um, easier to play. Now, when I say easier, basically I'm talking about high C. Um, when you test a mouthpiece, check your range, whatever your range is. If it's, let's just use high C as an example. If it's comfortable playing from your low F sharp to your high C, I don't mean a one scale necessarily, but as far as resistance and the mouthpiece speaking, and you like the sound, 
That's a great mouthpiece for you. It's a great starting point. One other sentence, get the right, use the, uh, you, you need, oh, let me restate that. You need the right sound for the job. So you're going to have to have a balance between the sound that you love and the most playing that you do. Yeah. You know, if you like really dark, bebop, foo-foo, smoky blue room sound, it's probably not going to work on first trumpet in an orchestra or first trumpet in a big band or in a salsa band. Logic and yep. intelligence and, you know, reason there. Get the right sound for the job and follow your heart there too. Yeah. Well, those are certainly great, great tips. You know, uh, you know, the, the sound is, the sound has to drive it. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. And don't forget the people don't care what your gear is. They care what you sound like and they care if they had enjoyment and were moved emotionally. That's all they care about. Yeah. The only people that seem to care about it are the other trumpet players, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, 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 you know, they're, they're certainly not paying your bills. So, <laughs> well, I, you know, as a side note, you, I, for players who wonder, I do switch mouthpieces for some sounds sometimes. I do switch horns a little bit for, uh, say, playing bebop versus uh, some other sort of big band situation where I'm out in front at a college university or something like that. I do switch sometimes in for certain pieces, usually not too much. In recitals, I switch a lot, instruments and just a couple of mouthpieces. I don't have that many, but for the sound yeah. and if, you know, for the right characteristic for the music. Yeah. Well, as close as we can get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the I, I don't know where that came from that, that it, it's almost like this kind of macho thing of, you know, I use one horn and one mouthpiece to do everything. And, you know, I use the biggest gear possible. And yeah, that's really old school. I don't know what that's about either. I mean, I can see the challenge of trying to be a hero of some kind, but yeah. I'm a little baffled by that myself. Yeah. Well, you know, Alan says it's okay, and to back <laughs> off. Alan says it's okay, and to back off. Okay, so we've got that we've got that cleared. Uh, so let's get to our final segment here, uh, and this is brought to us by our good friends at Robinson's Remedies, um, and this is our rapid fire round. And Alan, these are a series of questions that cover a variety of topics. Uh, not all of them are trumpet related, and uh, we just want to get your your best and quickest response to these questions and uh this was coming uh, there's always a test all right here we go rapid fire round with uh, with mr uh alan bazuti first question to you alan is who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player jeff tyzik no, jeff's a trumpet player what are you talking about man oh well he's retired my dad you're down <laughs> okay um what is your favorite book? Uh, Angle, of Repro Angle of Repose by Robert Stegner. Okay. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Um, Eyes Wide Shut. Ooh. <laughs> uh, did you have your eyes wide open for that movie? Well, I could, barely made it through. Oh, okay. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? I would like to be involved in the auto industry i'm not sure where but uh some kind of high-end vehicles okay uh what is your favorite drink uh, are we talking alcohol or in general yeah your favorite drink 
Well, I would have to say water first, but that's too, um, uh, a nice IPA. Oh, oh. medium, uh, bitterness content. Okay. And you're a West coaster. Yeah. All right. Um, you could have a dinner party and invite any three living people. Any three people in the world could come to this party. Who would you want to have there? Oh, my goodness. I think I would like to have Meryl Streep, Elon Musk, and Alan Mulally. Wow. You know who he is? Yes. Okay, yeah, but because he's people business uh, people yeah well that that would be <laughs> quite a quite oh, a dinner um you've got three additional uh tables or chairs at the table uh and uh, these are reserved for any three people in history so you could have any three people in history come back and join you for that dinner party who would you want to have there oh my gosh that's too difficult well louis armstrong and then I would say uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And finally, let me think. I like a hero person like um, Winston Churchill. Oh, okay. Some, some good, uh, good conversation, some yeah. good music. Uh, lacquer plated or raw? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear the question. Lacquer plated or raw? Lacquer. Lacquer, okay. Uh, what's your favorite quote? Wait a second. I have to take that back. Plated. Plated. Yeah, I've always used plated. I love plated. Okay. All right. As long as it's gold. <laughs> All right, so what's your favorite quote? My favorite quote. It's not back off. Be nice. Be nice. Okay. Uh, what is your greatest fear? Oh, my goodness. My greatest fear is very odd. It is to be put into one of those bamboo cages from the Vietnam War days that you can't sit down or stand up that John McCain was in. Mm, okay. I've done a lot of reading about Vietnam and that haunts me. Okay. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Superpower. Hmm. I don't know. I think it would be to heal disease. Okay. What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes. Okay. And what aspect do you feel is the most underrated? Uh, great jazz soloing. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Um, don't put off studying aspects that you've been told to work on now. Okay. Uh, and while you're giving yourself that advice about music, what advice would you give your younger self about life? Mm. Think about what others are saying and feeling. 
a little more. Okay. And final question for you, Mr. Vizzuti. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, well, I would just... It, it, legacy would feel good if it were something like an overall appreciation and understanding of the package of material that I've tossed out into the universe as far as music goes, such that it could be around a little while. Our composition would be a part, big part of that. Okay. All right. Well, I certainly thank you for our time together today. Um, you know, the, you, you've definitely been a musical hero of mine for a number of years. I, I won't get into how many years because they would make us both seem to be really old and, and oh. that that's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, no, it, it's been it's been great chatting with you, man. And uh, you know the the thing that's always inspired me about you uh, more so than than just your your technical prowess uh, and uh, your your command of the instrument uh, is just been the, the sp your spirit comes through in everything that you do. And uh, you know, having a chance to talk with you a few times, that's you know everything that I thought that you would be as a person, uh, you're actually, you know, 10 steps ahead of that. So, um, oh, you know, I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for those kind words and thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed it and I hope, uh, wish you a lot of success with your continuing podcasting career and beyond. Ah, well, thank you. Thank you, my friend. We'll have to get you back for uh, an episode in the future. Uh, uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have, a have an all Yamaha hang. I, I need to, need oh, to get yeah. the, get get uh wayne and uh well i need to get both waynes uh bergeron and, and tanabi uh on so uh that yeah. yeah that would be a good one all right so uh thanks again for your time uh alan and make sure that uh, if you have any questions about alan that uh, you check out his website the links are in the show notes um you know buy those books schedule yourself a a, a private lesson you know support Appreciate this man and uh yeah, and, and looking forward to, to hearing you uh, live at some point in the very near future, hopefully. Yes. Yes. All right. Thanks, Jose. All right. Take thanks, care. Alan. And thank you for joining us. And as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We're out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm -hmm.